Uh, if we haven't had the chance to meet yet, uh, my name's Justin and I'm a student pastor here at GBC. And uh, while Stacey and I, we have, you know, kind of, we've been around the last six weeks, but um, yeah, this morning uh, does mark the first Sunday being back uh, after the birth of our precious daughter, Olivia. Uh, she's going well, hopefully you've had the chance to meet her. Uh, yes, she is the cutest baby that you've ever seen, so I can clarify that for you. Um, and yeah, it is my joy and privilege to be able to continue uh, our series this morning, our summer series in the Psalms, uh, which we've called the Songs of Hope. Um, this morning, we won't actually just be looking at one psalm, uh, but two psalms, Psalms 42 and 43. And so if you do have your Bible with you, please yeah, uh, turn to them, and it'll be really great for you to yeah, keep that open uh, as we go through it this morning. I had initially picked Psalm 42 as my passage to preach on, uh, and as I was preparing on it this week, it did become increasingly clear that uh, actually both of these psalms, Psalms 42 and 43, uh, I think should be read and considered together. And there's a couple of uh, reasons for that, if it's, you know, actually of an interest for you. Uh, But the first being that Psalm 43 is actually the only psalm uh, without the superscription, which is the detail about the psalm uh, usually written before verse 1. Uh, It's the only one in this block of Psalms that are written by the sons of Korah that that doesn't have this superscription. Uh, That's the first reason. And the second reason is that you'll notice that there are two key refrains that are repeated in both Psalms, uh, which will help us to see the importance of a little later. And so I think it's right that we take both of these Psalms and treat them as one this morning. Uh, which actually I think is a a helpful reminder, right, that uh, while the superscriptions are part of the original text and are inspired by God, the chapters and verse numbers, they're not actually, nor are the headings. Um, Those have been, you know, helpful inclusions uh, included by faithful uh, Christians down the years, Um, but they're not always quite on the money, and that's okay. Uh, We do fully believe still that the Bible is God's infallible and inerrant word, and it's how he speaks to us today. And so let us read Psalms uh, 42 and 43. Follow along in your Bible or on the screen. And then I'll pray and we'll ask that God would help us hear him speak to us this morning. Psalm 42. To the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival." Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? 
As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and the unjust man. Deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Let's pray. Gracious Father, there will be many amongst us this morning whose delight and joy are in you and who have been greatly blessed already by the opportunity to sing your praises in the midst of your presence and with your people, and we praise you for that. And Father, there are many here too who are deep in the midst of despair and darkness and depression for many reasons, all of which are known to you, and you are near to the brokenhearted. The one thing which unites us all, which we all have in common, is our great unending need for your spirit to work in our hearts and minds, to help us to know and depend upon our Lord Jesus. We ask, Father, would you please do that amongst us this morning? However it is that your word resonates with us, we want to see and know and trust in and love our Lord Jesus more deeply. And we need your help for that to happen, Father. Please help us, for Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Uh, I do wonder this morning how deeply you might resonate with the words of this psalm. Perhaps it's one that you've come across in your Bible reading plan and you've kind of skimmed over it, not really feeling that it's got much to do with you that morning. You might be full of the, full of the joy of the Lord at the moment and you're eagerly anticipating what it is that God has to say to you this morning, but you are kind of wondering whether this psalm is at all relevant for you. Or maybe you're here and you're barely holding yourself together. Maybe this has actually been a psalm that you've returned to again and again over the years. But the truth is that Psalms 42 and 43 are so relevant to every single one of us here this morning because they answer the big question for us, what do we do when we feel like God is distant? What do we do when our hearts are heavy and overwhelmed with grief? What do we do when we so long and thirst for God to know him and his goodness and to be relieved from our pain, but there is no relief? What do we do when the darkness does not lift? This psalm speaks profoundly to us all because 
If we have not felt the weight of that question already, we would do well to prepare ourselves for that day when it comes because it's a loaded question, isn't it? Bound up in it are countless of other questions like, is God punishing me? Does God still love me? Is he even real? Why don't I just find relief in something else? There is so much at stake in this question. And God has been so kind to hold out to all of us this deep and unshakable hope in this psalm. So let's press in and listen to what God has to say to us this morning. One of the beautiful things about this psalm is that if you read it closely enough, it actually tells us a story. It's the story of someone who has these precious memories of intimate and beautiful worship in the presence of God and with his people. In verse 4, he remembers how he would lead the gathering of people as they enter into the temple of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, which incidentally was the responsibility that was given to the sons of Korah by King David in 1 Chronicles 6. It was their responsibility to play their instruments and sing songs of praise before the Lord and to lead people in worship in the house of God. Could you imagine that in the entire nation of Israel, this was the one family that was entrusted to stand in the epicenter of worship for the entire nation and to honour and lead the people in their worship of God. To be not only in the city of Jerusalem, which represented the very heart of the people, but even more than that, to be right near the very presence of God all day, every day. Here, there was fullness of joy, wasn't there? Gladness. His soul was not the least bit cast down, but lifted up all day long, rejoicing in God and with his people. But these are precious memories which now actually haunt this psalmist, don't they? No longer is he in the presence of God, leading the people of God in worship. No, verse 6 says that He's now remembering God from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar. As best as scholars can tell, this location is probably as far away from the temple as you could get while still being in the land of Israel. He's not where he longs to be. He's nowhere near the presence of God. He's not with his people to sing the praises of the Lord. And because of this, the darkness has overwhelmed him. Verse 3 tells us that his tears have been his food day and night. He is so distressed, so depressed, so despondent that all he can do is weep all day and night and cannot bring himself to eat anything. What's worse is what his distress is saying to him. Where is your God? His unending tears are a reminder to him that the God whom he once so delighted in now feels so distant. And as so often is the case, if that weren't enough, the psalmist also has his enemies oppressing him on every side, piling on him, kicking him while he's already down. Verse 10 says, As with a deadly wound in my bones... 
My adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? In the pit of depression and despair, when the darkness will not lift, when God seems so distant and when the enemy closes in on us from every side, how often does that same question ring in our hearts and minds? Where is your God? This question plagues us when we've just lost a loved one. We cannot understand why God didn't heal them. It plagues us when our mental health takes a serious turn for the worse and there is no end in sight when things will get better. When your financial situation is so stressful that it's overwhelming and you don't know how it's ever going to improve. When your marriage is on the rocks and things just seem to get continually worse and worse no matter how hard you try. When our hearts grow cold and weary in our love for the Lord for seemingly no reason. Despite all your best efforts at prayer and reading your Bible and talking it through with others, the darkness just will not lift. Not because you've been lazy or because you're unwilling to give up a particularly sinful habit or too slow to come to God and ask for help. Now, along with the psalmist, you yearn for God. You take refuge in him. You can sing along with him as the deer pants for flowing streams. So my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When, when shall I appear and come before God? How do we keep going? when we must live through these kinds of situations with the struggle of a lack of deep joy and delight in knowing God and being known by him? Where do we find the strength to keep walking in righteousness? How can we keep serving others? How can we keep trying to reach the lost with the gospel? What do we do when we feel like God is distant? This morning, I want to help us to see two key ways in which the psalmist models for us, showing us what we should do when we feel like God is distant. The first one that we see is that we are to wait on God by preaching the gospel to yourself. You might have noticed that there's many questions in this psalm. When shall I come and appear before God? Where is your God? Why have you forgotten me? Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? And these are all asked in response, right, to the psalmist's turmoil. They're questions that the psalmist cries from his soul when it's in anguish. But there's one question that we see in these psalms that's actually repeated three times that the psalmist asks, of his own soul. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? I think 
Uh, it's getting somewhat easier these days to get away with looking like you're talking to yourself. It used to be quite a strange thing to do, but wireless earbuds, they're getting smaller and smaller these days. And, and often enough, we'd walk past someone uh, who we think is talking to themselves, and you think, oh, that's, that's still a little bit odd. Uh, but sure enough, they've you know, got earbuds in their ears and they're talking to someone on the phone. Um, still, it's a little strange there, right? It takes us off guard. Uh, but the psalmist, he is not bothered the least bit about looking or feeling strange about talking to himself. No, three times he repeats in this psalm this question that he asks himself, he asks of his own soul, why are you cast down? And you might have thought this already, but perhaps it feels like quite an insincere question. After all, we've just kind of heard a bit of the story of why he is cast down and in turmoil. He feels like God is nowhere to be found. So what's the psalmist doing here? Is he delegitimizing the way that he feels? The way that we so often feel? Is he just saying to himself, you know, suck it up, mate. Stop making mountains out of molehills. She'll be right. I don't think so. We know that it is good and right to mourn our sin. It's good and right to long for God, to yearn for him. The psalmist, he's not settling for something less than God. He's not content to remain miserable and joyless in his relationship with God. He's not distracting himself from his pain. No, he's reminding himself, he is telling his soul not to lose hope. Not to believe the lies of the enemy and of his tears that God has utterly abandoned him. What he is doing, is he telling himself, what he is doing is he is telling himself not to listen to himself. And what do I mean by that? I mean that instead of listening to our own sorrows, we ought to be reminding ourselves of the hope that we have. We ought to be preaching the gospel to ourselves. Instead of giving in to our soul's demise, we must be reminding it of the God whom we belong to and what he has done for us. The psalmist preaches to himself, hope in God, for you shall again praise him. He is your salvation and your God. He tells himself, to keep holding on to God because the day will come when he will deliver him from his distress. One day the darkness will be lifted and he shall praise him again. His joy will be restored. He will come into his presence and worship him again. His confidence that God will restore him because that's what God does for his people. You might feel forgotten. Your soul might be telling you that all hope is lost. You might have no idea how or when or if you'll see something change in your situation, but the psalmist is showing us that those are not the things that ought to be focused on. No, instead, we must be active in reminding ourselves of who God is and what he has done. Israel knew the Lord to be the God who is merciful and gracious, 
who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping that steadfast love for thousands of generations, forgiving their iniquity and their sin, but by no means clearing the guilty. The psalmist knew who his God was, and he was diligently reminding himself that he is a God that is worthy to be waited on, to hope in, to trust that he would come to deliver him from his darkness. And now for us, how much more confident can we be in that same God because of our Lord Jesus? How much more can we be resolved to keep waiting on him? Hope is not lost because the gospel tells us that God is faithful. His plans are perfect and will be accomplished and his steadfast love is fixed upon his people and will never change. It's why Paul, after eight whole chapters of Romans, unpacking the depths of the gospel, can say that though the worst of the worst might come our way, nothing can ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. It's why he can say that God is working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. It's why he can say that if God did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how could he not with him graciously give us all things with him? And so let us keep waiting on God to fulfill his promises. Because he does, we know that he does, because he's given us Jesus. He did not spare Jesus for us, but Jesus suffered in our place so that we would be given everything with him. Jesus, he thirsted for water on that cross. And he thirsted for God to win for us a spring of water in us, welling up to eternal life that we might never thirst again. So let us say to our souls, why are you cast down? Don't you know that Jesus has given us everything? So why are you in turmoil? Remember that you belong to the living God who is faithful and is good and is utterly gracious to save. Soul, you might feel far from him now, but the day is coming, whether it be in this life or the next, where everything will be set right. And never again for all of eternity will you ever feel distant from God. Never again will you pant like a deer. Soul, the day is coming when you will be completely satisfied by the love of God. Hope in God, for you shall again praise him. I hope we can see how much better this is than the so-called prosperity gospel that's often preached these days. The prosperity gospel, it tries to hold out the promise that life will be unicorns and roses and candy all the days of your life as long as you have faith. That you can speak yourself 
into a new and better and healthy and more prosperous existence. But that is not what I mean by preaching the gospel to yourself, and nor is that what the psalmist is doing. What Psalm 42 and 43 holds out to us is the way in which we wait for God and hope in him and the spirit-empowered means by which we persevere until the end. Even though the darkness won't lift, even though the circumstances don't change, even though God might feel distant, even though our soul is cast down and in turmoil, friends, let us faithfully wait on the Lord and hold fast to him by preaching the gospel to ourselves. Because he is good and he is faithful and he will sustain you and hold you through this season. The day is coming when you will again praise him. For he is your salvation and your God. The second thing that the psalmist models for us to do when God seems distant is to wait on God by diligently and honestly praying to your sovereign Father. Like many psalms, uh, much of this psalm is actually a prayer. The psalmist, he addresses God in several points along the way, and particularly in verses 1 and 2, and then again in verse 9, before uh, almost all of Psalm 43 being this petition before God. And do you see how raw and how honest the psalmist is with God? He doesn't sugarcoat things. He says straight out to the Lord, why have you forgotten me? But this isn't him shaking his fist at God in unrighteous anger. I think you get the real sense that this is him mourning and trying to make sense of his experience and that God just feels so distant to him. But verse 9 says, I say to God, my rock. Even though he feels like God is distant from him, he is doing all that he can to hold fast to God. He says, God, you're my rock. You're my refuge, he says later on in 43. Only on you can I stand firm. You're my hiding place. So why does it feel like you've forgotten me? Why is my enemy triumphant over me when all of my hope is in you? It's an honest and raw prayer, isn't it? He doesn't hide anything from God. And I think that he is able to pray this way because of his unwavering confidence in the sovereignty of God. He knows that ultimately, God is the one who's in control. Do you see there in verses 7 and 8? Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. The psalmist knows that although mankind is in rebellion of God's rule and reign with much of the angelic realm, nothing will happen to him unless the Lord Almighty ordains it. 
I think the statement, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls, speaks of how history unfolds in the world only at the command of God's word. Nothing is outside of his perfect plan. Not even our own sinful efforts to try and rule it and take over it for ourselves. And so the psalmist knows that it's God's breakers and it's God's waves that have gone over him. This, I think, is one of the hardest truths for us to hear when we're in the midst of suffering. But it's also one of the most glorious and necessary ones to take a hold of, especially when we're not. Because rather than think that God is evil and lashes out at a whim or that he's the author of evil, we need to see that God's sovereign hand over all things, even the breakers and the waves that crush us, is actually really good news. It's good news because it means that your suffering is not wasted. Your suffering actually has purpose, a glorious heavenly purpose that's ultimately for your good. For what's the very next verse? He says, By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me. And while we may not ever fully understand it this side of eternity, God commands his steadfast love towards his people, and sometimes that will include his breakers and his waves crashing over us. Which means that your experience of God being distant is actually good for you. God allows it so that it will actually refine you, that it will ultimately strengthen you, that it will prove your faith and draw you nearer to himself in his good timing. And so as Christians, we can actually learn to embrace our suffering because we have a deep trust in the goodness and sovereignty of God and we can come honestly and diligently to him in prayer. I don't think we'll ever hear it described a better way than how Charles Spurgeon described it. He said it like this, I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me against the rock of ages. See, the worst thing that we could actually do when God feels distant is to waste our suffering by turning away from God rather than to him. The best way that we can turn to God is to come to him in diligent and honest prayer. We see the content of the psalmist's prayer, mostly in uh, Psalm 43. He prays for two key things. The first thing that he asks for is that God would vindicate him to prove him to be innocent and undeserving of his suffering. He, He pleads with God that He would defend him against his enemies, against ungodly people and the deceitful and unjust man. And why could he possibly ask for such a thing? Where could he get this kind of confidence from in the midst of his suffering? Because he knows that his refuge is in God alone. 
And when the righteous cry out to God for help, the Lord does hear them and he does deliver them out of trouble. And though the afflictions of the righteous are many, the Lord does deliver them out of them all. And so it is good and right for us to ask God to deliver us, to save us, to draw near to us, to deliver us from the oppression and condemnation and temptation of our spiritual enemy, to give us the fruit of the Spirit and to fill us with joy and peace when we're in need. You should ask for God to provide your every need. And you should ask him to restore your relationships. You should ask him to heal you from your cancer. But if you've been a Christian for more than five minutes, you'll know that quite often the answer from God will be, wait. Wait. Uh, Twelve years ago now, Stacy's eldest sister, Zoe, she passed away from suffering her whole life with cystic fibrosis. And praise God that she is with him now and she's no longer suffering. But as I was wrestling with why God didn't heal Zoe in those days after her death, I'll never forget what her best friend said to me. He said, God did answer our prayers, but just not in the way that we were expecting him to. Don't you think that she is healed and whole right now? See, there is a fuller and final and more glorious salvation that we are waiting for, church. We are a people who are waiting for our Saviour to return, to set everything right again, to judge our enemies once and for all, and for us to dwell perfectly in his midst. And when God doesn't seem to answer your prayer now, it doesn't mean that he hasn't heard it. It certainly doesn't mean that it's a no. It so often means wait. And in the waiting, God is refining something in us that is far more precious than gold. Something with eternal weight and beauty that we will look back on and it'll seem like a a mist and a vapour. These temporary sufferings, what does Paul say, are not worth comparing to the weight of glory that we are waiting for. So we can be honest with God now. We can plead for him now to deliver us from our oppressions, knowing that as we wait for our full salvation, he is doing something extraordinary in us. And so the second thing in which the psalmist prays for is found in verse 3. He says, Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. I think the psalmist could try and come up with any number of ways to try and make his way back to the temple and to take part in the worship of God again with his people. He could try and bring it about in his own strength. But he knows it would be futile. He knows that only when he is led by God's light and God's truth can he be brought there as he ought. 
I think it's this verse which makes me wonder if the story that this psalmist portrays is an analogy for the spiritual state of his, of his heart. That because of his lack of joy, because the dark will not lift, because of the spiritual oppression of his enemy, he feels so distant from God, not physically distant, but, but spiritually, emotionally distant. Maybe it is an analogy. But what about us here and now? What is this verse mean for us as a 21st century Christian? Well, no longer do we need to come to a temple or even to a church like we have today to worship God rightly. The day has come, like Jesus said, where no one will need to worship God on a mountain, but we can worship him in spirit and in truth, wherever we find ourselves. And what we need for is for God to send out his light and his truth to lead us to his holy hill, to his dwelling place, so that we can worship him as we ought. And how wonderfully has he done this for us in the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ, whom John in his gospel records as the light of the world, as the way, the truth, and the life. What the psalmist prays for here is fulfilled most fully in our Lord Jesus, who has come to lead us into the presence of God. Yes, he has done it fully and finally on the cross. But we can also pray this very same thing when the darkness overwhelms us. When God feels distant, we can plead with him that he would send his light and his truth in his son by his spirit and that they would lead us back to him. Then and only then, by God's grace restoring us, by lifting us up out of the miry clay, by setting our feet upon the rock, will we come to him who is our exceeding joy. What do we do when God seems distant? Psalm 42 and 43 teach us to wait faithfully. Like a stick in the mud, we refuse to yield. We hope in our sovereign God, knowing that he is faithful and that he will rescue us, even if we have to wait a lifetime. We plead with him in prayer, being honest and diligent and trusting in his sovereign hand. And we preach the gospel to ourselves, reminding ourselves that he who did not spare his own son for us will also with him graciously give us all things. Even when we don't know how or when or if the darkness will lift, let us keep waiting on the Lord. For the day is coming when we will stand in his presence. Every tear will be wiped away and we shall praise him without end. Let's pray. Gracious Father, Would you please send out your light and your truth in your Son and let them lead us to deep and everlasting joy in him. Father, please would you lift the darkness for those who have been suffering for so long and draw them to yourself. Strengthen them by your grace with the comforting presence of your Spirit that we may know you deeply and rejoice in your goodness to us. 
please warm our hearts to your gospel that we would be quick to preach it to ourselves, holding fast by faith to our Lord Jesus, trusting in him that we have everything we need in him. And Father, please keep our hope sure and steadfast in your steadfast love, knowing that because of it, the day will come when every tear will be wiped away and we will have endless joy in you. You are our salvation and our God. You have not forgotten us, but you are leading us home. Though our souls might be cast down, help us to lift the eyes of faith and set them upon your Son, and that we would hold fast until the end. We pray these things in the name of Jesus for your glory and for the good of your people. Amen.